Section 11 of All Afloat. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Foster. All Afloat, a Chronicle of Craft and Waterways by William Wood. Administration. Administration is used here for want of a better general term to cover every form of management that is done ashore, as well as every form of what might be called, by analogy with fleets and armies, non-combatant work afloat. It falls into two natural divisions. The first includes all private management, the second all that concerns the government. Here, even more than in the other chapters, we are face to face with such complex and enormous interests that we can only take the merest glance at what those interests principally are. The privately managed interests have both their business and their philanthropic sides. Let us take the philanthropic first. Siemens Institutes have grown from very small beginnings, and are now to be found in every port where English-speaking seamen congregate. They began when, as the saying was, the sailor earned his money like a horse and spent it like an ass. They flourish when the sailor is much better able to look after himself, but their help is needed still and what they have done in the past has not been the least among the influences which have made the common lot of the seamen so very much better than it was. Another excellent influence is that of the Royal National Mission to Deep-Sea Fishermen. This mission sends its missioners afloat in its own steamers to tend the sick and bring some of the amenities of shore life within the reach of those afloat. Religion is among its influences, but only in an unsectarian way. Its work in Canadian waters is directed by two able and self-sacrificing men, Dr. Grenfell, whose base is at St. Anthony's in northeast Newfoundland, and whose beat goes straight down north along the Newfoundland-Labrador, which faces the Atlantic, and Dr. Hare, whose base is Harrington, in the center of the Canadian-Labrador, which runs in from the Strait of Belle Isle to Natashquan, more than 200 miles along the north shore of the Gulf, among a perfect labyrinth of islands. Next, the business side. As only a single instance can be given, and as ordinary business management in shipping circles more or less resembles what is practiced in other commercial affairs, the special factor of marine insurance will alone be taken, as being the most typically maritime and by far the most interesting historically. Ordinary insurance on land is a mere thing of yesterday compared with marine insurance, which, according to some, began in the ancient world, and which was certainly known in the Middle Ages. It is credibly reported to have been in vogue among the Lombards in the 12th century, and on much the same principles as are followed by Canadians in the 20th. It was certainly in vogue among the English before Jacques Cartier discovered the St. Lawrence, and in 1613, the year Champlain discovered the site of Ottawa, a policy was taken out in the ordinary course of business on that famous old London merchantman, the Tiger, to which Shakespeare twice alludes once in Macbeth and again in Twelfth Night. Modern practice is based on the Imperial Marine Insurance Act of 1906, which is a development of the Act of 1795, which in its turn was a codification of the rules adopted at Lloyd's in 1779. Nothing shows more unmistakably how supreme the British are in every affair of the sea than these striking facts. That A1 at Lloyd's is an expression accepted all the world over as a guarantee of prime efficiency that nearly every shipping country in the world has its own imitation of Lloyd's, nearly always including the name of Lloyd, and that the original Lloyd's at the Royal Exchange in London is still unassailably first. Most people know that Lloyd's originated from the marine underwriters who used to meet for both business and entertainment at Lloyd's Coffee House in the 17th century, but comparatively few seem to know that Lloyd's, like most of its imitators, is not a gigantic insurance company, but an association of carefully selected members, 
who agree to carry on their completely independent business affairs in daily touch with each other. Lloyd's method differs from that of ordinary insurance in being conducted by underwriters, each one of whom can write his name under any given risk for any reasonable part of the whole. Thus, instead of insuring a million with a company or a single man, the owner lays his case before Lloyd's, whereupon any members who choose to do so can sign for whatever proportion they intend to assume. In this way, individual losses are spread among a considerable number of underwriters. Long experience has proved that the individual and associated methods of doing business have nowhere been more happily combined than they are at Lloyd's today, and that this special form of combination suits both parties in a shipping risk better than any other known. Canadian shipping has often resented Lloyd's high rates against the St. Lawrence route, and threatened to establish a Lloyd's of its own. Yet, on the whole, the original Lloyd's is the fairest, the soundest, and incomparably the most expert association of its kind the world has ever seen. Business administration in marine affairs is complex enough. Lloyd's alone is not the subject of one textbook, nor of several, but of a regular and constantly increasing library. What, then, can usefully be said in a very few words about the still more complex affairs of government administration? The bare enumeration of the duties performed by a single branch of the Department of Marine and Fisheries in Canada will give some faint idea of what the whole department does. There are naval, fisheries, and marine branches, each with sub-branches of its own. Among the duties of the marine branch are the following, the construction of lighthouses and fog alarms, the maintenance of lights and buoys, the building and maintenance of Dominion steamers, the consideration of all aids to navigation, the maintenance of the St. Lawrence ship channel, the weather reports and forecasts, investigations into wrecks, steamboat inspection, cattle ship inspection, marine hospitals, submarine signals, the carrying out of the Merchant Shipping Act and other laws, humane service, subsidies to wrecking plant, winter navigation, removal of obstructions, examinations for masters and mate certificates, control of pilots, government of ports and harbors, navigation of Hudson Bay and northern waters generally, port wardens, wreck receivers, and harbor commissioners. Besides all this, there are, in the work of the department, items like the Dominion Registry of more than 8,000 vessels, the administration of the enormous fisheries, and the hydrographic survey. Then, quite distinct from all these Canadian government activities, is the British Consular Service, maintained by the imperial government alone, but available for every British subject. And round everything, afloat and ashore, supporting, protecting, guaranteeing all, stands the oldest, most glorious, and still the best of all navies in the world, the Royal Navy of the Motherland. This is only a glance at the conditions of the present. While each imperial and Canadian service, department, branch, and subdivision has a long, romantic, and most important history of its own, the lighthouse service alone could supply hero tales enough to fill a book. The weather service is full of absorbing interest and, what with wireless telegraphy, submarine bells, direction indicators, microthermometers as detectors of ice, and many other new appliances, the whole practice of navigation is becoming an equally interesting subject for a book filled with the fairy tales of science. Even hydrography, that is, the surveying and mapping or charting of the water, has an appealing interest, to say nothing of its long and varied history. Jacques Cartier, though he made no charts, may be truly called the first Canadian hydrographer, for his sailing directions are admirably clear and correct. In the next century we find Champlain noting the peculiarities of the Laurentian waters to good effect, while in the next again, the 18th, we come upon the famous Captain Cook, one of the greatest hydrographers of all time. 
Cook was at Quebec with Wolfe, and afterwards spent several years in making a wonderfully accurate survey of the St. Lawrence and Gulf. His pupil, Vancouver, after whom both a city and an island have been named, did his work on the Pacific coast equally well. The principal hydrographer of the 19th century was Admiral Bayfield, who extended the survey over the Great Lakes, besides resurveying all the older navigational waters with such perfect skill that wherever nature has not made any change, his work stands today reliable as ever. And it should be noted that all these successful official surveys, up to the present century, were made by naval officers, another little-known and less-remembered service done for Canada by the British Guardians of the Sea. End of Section 11